Welcome. The parish is a church community in Alpharetta, Georgia, practicing the way of Jesus for the sake of others. Talks like these are just one part of how we gather to be deeply reshaped by Jesus. So we invite you to join us any Sunday morning for a full church gathering. You can find more information or contact us by visiting our website at parishanglican.org. I'm going to invite Patrick and Jim to come forward. We're going to do our scripture readings. And the first one is from Romans, uh, and the second one is from the Gospel of Matthew. So when we get to the Gospel, we'll all stand as a way of just addressing Jesus as the living word speaking to us. Uh, Patrick loves being on the host team, I think, for this moment right here, and I love that you're on the host team for this moment right here. So Patrick, read to us from the book of Romans. The earlier revelation was intended simply to get us ready for the Messiah, who puts everything right for those who trust in him to do it. Moses wrote that anyone who insists on using the law code to live right before God soon discovers it's not so easy. Every detail of life regulated by fine print. By trusting God to shape the right living in us is a different story. It's the word of faith that welcomes God to work and set things right for us. This is the core of our preaching. Say the welcoming word to God Jesus is my master, embracing body and soul. God's work of us doing doing in us what he what he did in raising Jesus from the dead. The word of the Lord. Let me tell you why you are here. You're here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? You've lost your usefulness and will end up in the garbage. Here's another way to put it. You're here to be light, bringing out God's color in the world. If I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? I'm putting you on a light stand. Now that I've put you there on a hilltop, on a light stand, shine. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up with God, this generous Father in heaven. Don't suppose for a minute that I have come to demolish the scriptures, either God's law or the prophets. I'm not here to demolish, but to complete. I am going to put it all together and pull it all together in a vast panorama. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Andy. I got my coffee back. <laughs> Disciplined for a while, but redeemed in the end. Thank you, Andy. Um, <laughs> well, it's fitting that our Gospel reading come from the message this morning, because today's one of those days, I know you all love them, where I'm going to invoke a lot of my man, Eugene Peterson, uh, who wrote that version of the, of the scriptures, uh, the message. 
And uh, Peterson also wrote this book. It's called Christ Plays in 10,000 Places. This is uh, one of the most brilliant theological works I've ever encountered. It's over 300 pages, so you got to really want it. Uh, and it's got a bit of a slog to it. But if you push through, this is one of the things that has been a dominant factor in inspiring this whole big enough story thing that we've been walking through as a community over the last few months. And so today I'm going to pull a lot from Eugene. And in fact, an entire section of that book is going to be the inspiration uh, for this morning's uh, sermon. And so all the credit to Eugene for that. We're going to quote him a handful of times, and, and this imagery comes from him. But it gets us right where we need to be. Uh, we've been walking through the stories uh, of, of God's activity in creation and in humanity. And uh, you all know the drill. We've been walking through the five acts of this creation the fall into sin, God's promise to set things right, and then Jesus comes. And with Jesus is this epiphany that means that what things used to mean, they now mean something new, something more, something broader, something deeper. Jesus does not just restore all things, he restores all things. And that's what we've been talking about in Epiphany, the season after the Epiphany, is that Jesus is restoring the whole story. And so he goes back to creation. In fact, he was there at the start in creation. We, we read in John chapter 1, Jesus was there when act 1 happened. And, and because of what comes later in the life of Jesus, everything that happened in Genesis suddenly takes on new and fresh meaning. And the same thing, everything that happened in the fall into sin takes on new and fresh meaning as Jesus falls to us to restore us again. And then the last few weeks, we've been talking about this act 3, the promise of God to stay with this creation project and set all things right and to, uh, to, to, to finish what was begun. And uh, so that's where we'll pick up. We've been saying that there in this promise is this idea that God is creating a promised people for the world, a people who are set apart for the sake of others. And God chooses Abram in Genesis chapter 12, he makes this covenant with him and with his descendants, and those will become the people of Israel and later will become the church. And so we are swept up in what began in Genesis chapter 12. And the idea is that God is always choosing people. He's choosing them to mediate and mirror his love in the world. God pulls these people aside. He sets them apart. He chooses and blesses them so that they might be a blessing to others. And so that idea of the shining and reflecting of God's love so that the whole world might be caught up into God's recreation story begins there with Abram. And it continues on to us that we are the people God promised the world who would live for the sake of others. We are part of that great promise, that act three promise, and it's a responsibility, it's a vocation, it's a calling, it's what it means to be the promised people of God, that we would live in a way that the world is caught up in this great story that brings us all back home to the Father's house of love. That's part of what it means for us to follow God. Uh, but living like that does not just happen, and living like that does not come naturally. The default condition of humanity is selfishness. It is the self-oriented life, the self-referenced life, the self-orbiting life, the life that is looking out for number one. It is the world that is still animated and dominated by the power of sin and death. And it is the default condition we all bring, and then God goes to work on us. 
And he saves us to invite us into this big, broad, new story. And we must be reformed. We must be reshaped. We must be restoried if we're going to live as God's people for others. And this is a lifelong work. It's not a transaction sort of thing. It's not like we're, we're, we're selfish one moment and then we're just deeply Christ-referenced the next moment. None of us find that to be our experience. Instead, we have this lifelong work of salvation, of sanctification, of spiritual formation. It's what Patrick read from Romans chapter 10, verse 7, that we trust God to shape right living in us. That that's a whole different story. It's a whole different story than the story that the world is operating under. It is a word of faith that welcomes God to go to work in my life and to be the one who is setting things right for me, for us, for the world. And so, just like last week, what I'd like to do as we reflect on this, as we sit with this idea of, like, how does God restory the promised people? How does Jesus, the epiphany of Jesus, restory the promised people? Uh, that's the question for today. And, and what I want to do, just like we did last week, is do that by reflecting on two stories, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament, and see how God is, uh, is at work to shape his people into a different sort of people, not just a people who believe certain things, not just a people who affirm certain tenets of a certain doctrine of a certain faith, but people who live differently in the world so that the world can get a sense that there are other ways of being that are healthy and whole and move the world back toward the shalom we sung about earlier. And so uh, the first story is the Exodus. We return to the Exodus story one more time. We've talked about it a handful of weeks. But this time I want to zero in on a particular part of the Exodus story that we have not talked about so far, and it's the story of the ten plagues. Um, if you are not familiar, uh, the Exodus story really reaches its culmination in these ten plagues that happened to the people of Egypt until finally Pharaoh relents and he says, just go, just go, you know, get out of here. I can't handle these, these plagues anymore that are happening to our, to our uh, country, our empire. And so they send God's people out uh, toward the wilderness and eventually toward the promised land. Um, and so we rewind all the way back to that story, and we remember that God has made these people a promise, that he's going to bring them into a promised place. And it starts with Abram. And Abram has a son, Isaac, and Isaac has a son, Jacob, and Jacob has a son, Joseph, and Joseph comes to Egypt, and Egypt is the provision and salvation of God in Joseph's story, because there's this great famine in the land. And Egypt takes them in, becomes the place of God's provision, but now it's been a long time. It's been 400 years. And over those 400 years, Egypt went from the place of provision to a place of oppression. 400 years of brick making and taskmasters and hard labor. And they have had a front row seat, God's promised people. These people who God said, I have big plans for you for 400 years now have been in slave labor with a front row seat to the absolute worst that the world has to offer. And so uh, let's go to Peterson for our first, our first quote, and he gets us into this. That screen is not on. The loudest and most conspicuous players on the field of history, certainly those whose names are in the history books, are playing a quite different game with quite different rules than God is. War games, self games, sex games, money games, church games, games ranging from trivial to lethal, they are sin and death games. And Egypt 
had developed and perfected one of the most impressive God games of all, dominating the landscape of people far and near, a totalitarian society ruled by a dictator whom everyone believed was also a god. That's the context. For 400 years, God's people have found themselves in. And the splendor that surrounds this dictator god, Pharaoh, made it believable. You've got incredible architecture that the world has never seen. You've got amazing technology. You've got these vast systems and structures in place. There is art. There are golden statues. There's pyramids stretching up to the sky. There is external glory everywhere. But on the inside of Egypt is abuse and cruelty and oppression and degradation. And it's all God's people have known for 400 years. There is this thing that happens when you live under the thumb of the worst the world has to offer for that long, your whole world starts to shrink. And you start to lose your imagination, your vision, your will, that there might be any possibility of a different way to live. You start saying things like, is God doing anything in this wasteland at all? Is God at work at all? In the midst of our condition, we cry out to God, but nothing seems to happen, and the only game left in town, it seems, is Egypt's game. It's the only thing that works. The only thing that's practical in the world is the game of Egypt. And so how is God going to teach his promised people to live differently when this is all they know? How's he going to teach them the rules of a different game? I was listening to NPR a few weeks ago, and there was a story that came on about Ethiopia. Ethiopia had suffered generations of violence and corruption and oppression, but then there was this long uprising, this loud protest. There was this from the top, uh, from the bottom up kind of uh, protest against that, that, that terrible way that they were living, and the old regime finally toppled underneath all of this protest. And there was a leader of the uprising, Abiy Ahmed, and he became from protester to prime minister. And under his leadership, for the first time in a long time, people in Ethiopia could begin to speak freely. They could begin to be artists, saying what needed to be said, right? Peace was made with rebels, and long-exiled opposition leaders were welcomed home, and Ahmed won the Nobel Peace Prize. But there's also a thing that happens when you have suffered under oppressive leadership for a really long time and then suddenly find yourself in power. You can start to do the same thing that was done to you. And as the story goes on, soon enough, Abiy Ahmed begins to silence his critics. And then he goes to war against the former regime. And he starts relying on the same tools, but now as the one who is in charge. He begins to throw thousands in prison. And in time, as the story ends, it is clear that the same prime minister of peace who had spoken hope and liberation has just become one more cruel, oppressive leader. And this is what happens all the time. Abused people become abusive. Oppressed people use all those same oppressive tools to try to get their own power. Corrupt employees become corrupt bosses. Hurt spouses hurt others. And enslaved people become taskmasters. It's that cycle of sin and death, right? And so, let's talk Peterson again. Here's what he says about that. He says, so if by some miracle Israel became free of their slave condition, 
they would almost certainly take their place higher up in the chain of oppression and function as oppressors themselves. How was God to rip off the veneer and expose it as evil so that they would not carry their Egyptian experience with them as the approved reality and simply reproduce it? If Moses led them out of Egypt without their imaginations thoroughly cleansed from the evil they were immersed in, they would end up oppressing the weak and trampling on the helpless in the name of their gods, just as had been done to them. And so, the plagues. The plagues function as an elaborate exorcism. It is a casting out of the sin and death demon that had been all that they had known for 400 years. The plagues are like me last weekend with a toothbrush going to mold that was stuck on our windowsill and scrubbing it with bleach so that what is like killing, what is toxic, what is bad might be undone and the true what was meant to be underneath the surface could be restored again, right? It is the the killing off of the things that are desecrating and defacing the people of God. The plagues are this radical surgery. It's a transplant of God ways to replace Egypt ways so that by the time God's people leave Egypt, not only will the evil of oppression that they've experienced in their bodies be cast off, but the mental evil of oppression in their imagination might be cleansed, and they could start to imagine that there are different ways of being in the world. And so God is at work to restory his people. The idea for us theologically here is that salvation is not just a one-time deliverance, right? That's how often the story is told. When did you get saved, right? But what's actually happening in this story is this deep way of life that is being retaught to these people. There is another way of being in the world. It's what God was up to then, it's what God is up to now. God is going to restory his people. And uh, so it's Super Bowl Sunday today, go Eagles. If you're a Chiefs fan today, you're wrong. Uh, <laughs> and uh, that's, that's convenient for us because it gives us the image of how Peterson imagines the plagues, right? There is this idea of Pharaoh on the one side of the field and Moses on the other side of the field. And there is this packed stadium. Egypt and Israel are in the bleachers. They're watching to see which God is the real God, which way is the real way. Is it the God Ra or the God Yahweh? Is it Pharaoh or is it Moses? Which way of being is ultimately the way that wins in this world. Who is really in charge here? And the fight's going to go 10 rounds with the plagues. And round one and two end, there's no clear winner, right? But then, uh, we'll go to our next quote. Peterson describes the scene this way. They go repeatedly head to head, one after another, the forms and forces over which everyone assumed Pharaoh was sovereign over turn out to be at Moses' beck and call. Everyone in the arena, and it's a full house, see that Pharaoh is completely out of control. The massive Egyptian world, sanctioned by thousands of years of dominance, is exposed to be a lie. And so with the plagues comes a reprogramming for God's people, a cleansing, an exorcism of sorts that is required for any Exodus story to become a promised land story. It is the story of the spiritual journey. It is the story of of us as God's promised people becoming the people God promised to the world. We have to go through this sort of cleansing 
in our, in our own lives. It's the work of saying yes to Jesus, but then also saying yes to the way of Jesus. It's really easy to say yes to Jesus and then say no to the way of Jesus because we still know all these other ways. It's really easy to say, God, bring me into the promised land, and then I'll be just like Egypt taught me was the only practical way to actually live. And so the work of Christianity, becoming little Christ, is the work of reprogramming where everything I know about the world and the ways the world works has to be changed, that I would not only say yes to the word of Jesus, but to the way of Jesus as well. That I wouldn't just replicate and perpetuate sin's bondage and now also have a layer of religious language to justify it. We see this happen so often in our world. And so the old ways of being in the world have to be radically exposed. They have to be exercised from us. It's what Paul says, that there is this spirit of slavery in us, and it must be liberated. We need to be set free from life according to the flesh. We need a new spirit. That's what's going on in the plagues. And then thousands of years later, Jesus walks into a temple. And in one day, he reenacts the plagues in one fell swoop. He says, this is the established religious way of being in the world. The, the temple was this place of oppression. It was a place of financial money laundering in order to get people to do the religious things that the powerful people wanted them to do. It was a way of profiting off of worship. It was a way of putting heavy burdens on the backs of others in the name of God. And so you've got the money lenders and the power brokers and the shop people, and they've all set up shop in the temple, the religious and political leaders who were the new pharaohs of the day, and Jesus walks in and he turns the tables over. And he exercises the den of robbers that this might be restored again to a place of prayer. It's the work that has to happen in my life. The exorcism of all the, the ways that put me first, that what has become a den of robbers might be turned into a house of prayer. And uh, it's the way that we remember that God is doing work on the cross that will come to completion by exposing all of the false gods. Uh, if you look at Colossians chapter 2, what Paul says Jesus does on the cross is that he disarms those old powers and authorities. He makes a public spectacle of them. He triumphs over them on the cross. And so what begins in Israel's Exodus story is completed in Jesus and then given to Jesus' church as a way to follow it is a lifelong obedience of us becoming people who are not just given to the world, but given to the world because we live differently and we invite better, more healed, more whole ways of living. It's the reminder to us that the stories our culture and experience tell us are the only real ways to live, the only practical ways to live. Those are not, in fact, the only game in town. Those are not, in fact, the way the world actually works. It's a sham reality. It's a pharaoh reality. It's a raw reality. But at the deeper levels, it is Yahweh's reality that is the real way of the world. It is the cruciform posture of Jesus that says, I give of myself for the sake of others. Others, that we are ultimately invited into. We become people bucking the default system of selfishness and instead embracing the meek and sacrificial and obedient posture, the God-honoring, co-suffering posture of Christ on the cross for the sake of others. God desires to give the world people who live like that. It's what our world needs. It's his promise to a world that still lives amidst sin and death. And it's ultimately the way of saying, yeah, 
The first 11 chapters of this story, they're given to sin and death and all the exponential increase of sin and death. But I'm reserving the rest of the story for the people I will promise you who will be reshaped deeply by me so that this whole thing might be set right through the work of Jesus and the work of people who are learning to live like Jesus. And so in that way, salvation through Exodus becomes far deeper than just being led out of our own oppression and into a safe place. Sin is not just a force we are rescued from. It is a force we live in resistance to. It is a force we show up as people who say, yeah, yeah, the world is moving east of Eden and we're going to push it back westward again. We are going to be people who live as witnesses to another way. We aren't just plucked out of sin and into a safe cocoon. We are sent into the sinful world as ambassadors of another way. That's how God restores his people. I want to end with this. Jim gave us that image from Matthew chapter 5. A city on a hill that can't be hidden. Y'all see the screen. Don't look at that one. That one's going to lead you astray. What do you see on this screen? Yeah. The only thing we notice on this screen is the one white dot. Uh, this is an image that is 15 inches by 10 inches at 300 pixels per inch. And so what you have up on this screen right now is 2,625 pixels. Ten of them are white. 2,625 pixels, and only 10 of them are white. That is 0.003% of everything on that screen is white, and yet what do we all see? This is God's promised people in the world, showing up as those who live differently, showing up as ones cleansed through the, the hard waters of going through pain and seeing that that pain does not get the last word, that God has better ways to live, and he is going to set us up as a city on a hill saying, I have restored and restored you, and now I've given you back to the world as people who say there is another way of being. That's the good news of the exodus, the good news of the temple cleansing, the good news of what it means to live a life of deliverance and salvation. And so let's pray for a moment. Jesus, we pray that you would put your finger on places in our lives that either just don't yet believe or cannot yet trust or are in resistance to your word that the real show in town the real game to play is the game of the meek and humble Christ, the all-powerful Christ. Would you deliver us and save us? Not just by making things healed for us or easier for us or safe for us, but would you save us by radically saving us out of the lesser ways of our old life and into the new ways of Christ-likeness? Help us cooperate with you in that. And take a moment now and just talk to God about it. See if there's anything that God emphasizes in your heart that he wants to invite you into a more whole way of living.
And go ahead and begin to imagine what it would look like to cooperate with God, to be God's partner in saying yes, not only to his work, but his way. God, we thank you for people like this man John mentioned earlier who lived differently in his life. And here we are, however many years later, remembering that way he showed up as 10 white pixels in a sea of lesser words. Please transform us into those kind of people, living for the sake of others, for the healing of your world. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen.